Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians where we are going to be considering this morning verses 10 through 24. Galatians 1, 10 through 24, and you can find that passage on page 1141 in your pew Bibles. Last week we talked about the need that you and I have in what is largely a biblically ignorant culture, not just out there in this world, but even much closer to home in so much of what passes for the church today. We have a desperate need to make certain that we are getting the gospel right. We live in a day when the message of Jesus Christ and the word of God are constantly coming under attack. And so we need to make sure that we ourselves fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need, of course, to be willing to speak up and to fight against those who would seek to alter that life-giving, life-sustaining message in any way, shape, or form. As we have witnessed here in Galatians and elsewhere, it is most certainly not a new fight, is it? The Apostle Paul himself, even in the infant church, had to fight continually against those who sought to bring more to the message of what it takes to justify sinful man before a holy and perfect God than the radical message of the grace of God through Jesus Christ would ever allow. There had to be more, according to the false apostles. Man needs to do something. There needs to be at least something in this Christian life that we ultimately can keep within the realm of our own control. And so these false apostles had crept craftily into the church there in Galatia and they had done everything they could think of in order to undermine the Apostle Paul as a means ultimately of undermining his message of hope in the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And we know a little bit of the history here. These men had planted seeds of doubt in the minds of the people regarding Paul the man, Paul the teacher, even Paul the preacher. And they did it so that they could then undermine his authority and ultimately undermine the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul had so faithfully preached. They had questioned his education. They had questioned the authority of those who had taught him. They had even put serious doubts into the minds of the Galatian people whether or not Paul himself really had any authority whatsoever to teach. But as we have witnessed here, Paul refuses to simply be brushed aside so that other wicked men could come in and seriously pervert the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's here that Paul digs in and he fires back. I mentioned to you last week that Paul's love for the people certainly compelled him to do so. And I, and I want to say that's, that's absolutely true. We can see his 
clear, manifest love for these people throughout the, the entirety of this letter. But I also want to say there's much more compelling Paul than just that. And beloved, the source that drives Paul to defend, to rebuke, to correct is Paul's clear love and appreciation for the pure gospel message itself. I think we need to see that. Paul is a man who is passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is so for the same reason, really, that all of us as Christians everywhere should be. What is that reason? Why the passion? Well, Paul himself has peered into the eyes of the holy law of God. And through the work of the Holy Spirit upon his own cold, dead heart, he has witnessed firsthand the depths of his own depravity. He knows how low he truly is when no one else is watching him. He has also, through the illumination of his understanding by that gracious work of the Holy Spirit of God, saw very clearly the mercy and the grace that are being extended to him, a filthy, wretched sinner, through the blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And beloved, you have to see that about Paul. This message is for the Apostle Paul and indeed is for all of us who have glimpsed the depths of our own sin. Truly a message of hope. And Paul fights as one who knows that it is his very hope in life and in death that is at stake in this fight. And so he fights as one who knows and believes the message of the gospel with all of his heart, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. He loves the message of the gospel to the degree that he would hate anything that would dare to vault itself up and try in vain to compare with the majestic, wonderful grace of Almighty God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul fights as one who despises everything that the world could ever offer up that would try to compare to this glorious message. And so this morning, as we continue to watch as Paul lays out his defense of the message of the gospel, this message of hope that he had passed on to these Galatians, I hope that we can begin to see the parallels between the way in which the very message of the gospel is being attacked even in our own time. And beloved, the truth is, I pray our own passions would be stirred within us anytime we hear someone speak or promote a message that is less than this hope and call it the Christian faith. This message is the reason for our hope. It is the reason that you and I do not fall headlong into utter and complete despair in what is by all accounts a difficult life. This morning as we finish this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, it is my hope that our faith would be strengthened and nourished as we consider the source of this wonderful news that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone 
solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. So that we can truly lift our voices and praise together, proclaiming that it really is God alone who gets the glory. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you once again to turn with me to the first letter of Paul's first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians and follow along as I read verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul says this, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, Indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to come to your word this morning. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us, that you would fill us with your spirit so that hearing your word, we might be transformed by that word to live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, having just made the point that we looked at together last week, that if anyone should come in and teach another gospel other than what he had already pointed them towards, namely that faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely by the grace of Almighty God alone, will justify sinful man before a perfect and holy God, if anyone preaches anything other than that, that they should be accursed. He now moves towards his own life as yet further proof for the Galatians of the absolute truth and the validity of his message. And he says to them in verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul knows that these false teachers had attacked 
much more than just the message of the gospel. They had gone so far as to attack him personally as a means of undermining the message that Paul preached. They had questioned how it was that he could think so little of the law as to not require something so fundamental, so foundational to the faith of their fathers as circumcision. Or even something so familiar as adherence and obedience to even the dietary laws of their ancient faith. And they really were accusing Paul here, and we need to see this because there's certainly some irony here. They were accusing Paul of being the one who had sort of snuck in or crept into the church and preached an easy gospel. What we would refer to today as easy believism. How can Paul not uphold the law? He wants you to believe that there is nothing that you must do, that there is nothing that is required of you, that there is nothing for you to sacrifice, that it's all of God, and that you really do not even need to observe something so foundational, so important, so critical as God's ceremonial law in order to be redeemed. He just wants you to be like him so that he can say that you are his followers, his disciples. Paul is building his kingdom. He's full of pride, and so he's telling you exactly what he thinks that you want to hear. Beloved, just allow yourself to pause for a moment. And can you imagine being the Apostle Paul and facing these particular charges from these men? Can you imagine? Now, before you protest that statement and tell me, well, Steve, maybe you would lash out against them, but Paul was a humble man. He was a holy man. I'm sure Paul would have wept for these misguided men. Well, I I want to remind you, Paul, he wore the same prison house of flesh that we all wear. And there had to be at least some sense in Paul's mind of the gross injustice of these accusations being raised against him. Have you ever considered what the gospel cost the Apostle Paul in terms of his own ease in life? And now he's facing this accusation from these men. The very message that has destroyed anything like physical comfort and ease in Paul's life. He's being accused of promoting that as an easy message. The fact that a sovereign God gets all of the glory in this life as you live through the pain and the suffering that are brought about by the very message you preach. That's the easy message. You can imagine that that had to have been an extremely difficult accusation for Paul to face. And he says in return, are you really going to try and make the case that my life has been about ease so that I could gain the approval of men? 
And you understand what he's saying here. He's saying, look, if I pleased men, if that was my goal in life, to please people, I can assure you I would have never become a bondservant of Christ. Because that's not how you please men. Pleasing man is easy. The fact that these men are reacting this way towards me should tell you exactly where I stand. Paul says they hate me. They, the message is wonderful. It's desperately needed. It's water to a dry and thirsty soul. It is life and joy and peace. However, it is anything but easy. And my life, Paul says, is a testimony to that fact. This message, though it glorifies God, it strips man of having any boast at all in this life before God. It's a message that these men have convinced the Galatians was contrived in order to gain the hearts of men for Paul. It's ridiculous. And so Paul says, is this really what you believe? Look at what he says. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul again must defend himself against more of these false apostles' claims. And trying to discredit him, trying to strip him of any authority, these wicked men had said that Paul was in fact rebelling against the actual eyewitness apostles in Jerusalem. That's what they're proclaiming. That though they had supposedly taught him the gospel, though they had supposedly given him the authority to preach the gospel, that he was actually standing in rebellion against that authority. And Paul reminds the Galatians that he received this message not from the mouth of any man. That his calling, his authority did not come from the hands of any man or from any men, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the apostles in confirming Paul's ministry, when they confirmed his ministry, They were simply confirming what God had already done. The supernatural work of God allowed for Jesus Christ to be revealed to the eyes of Saul of Tarsus. And when Jesus knocked him down on the road to Damascus and asked him why he was persecuting him, it didn't take Paul very long to realize whose presence he was in. And Paul began to open his mouth right away with all the yes lords. His eyes were immediately opened to the fact that this was God. And Paul said, what is it that you want me to do? Paul's authority may have been acknowledged by men, but it came from God himself. Paul calls on the Galatians to remember the facts about his call against these accusations that were being brought before them concerning him. He says, you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, 
How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He says to the Galatians, look, you know who I was. When it came to the traditions of my father and the holy law, I was more exceedingly zealous than many, if not all, of my contemporaries. In effect, Paul is saying that he has defended the traditions of the Pharisees and the Jewish people more consistently, more constantly than you and all the false teachers put together. When it came to persecuting the church of God, Paul exceeded all of them. If justification before God came by keeping the law and keeping the vain traditions of the Pharisees, then Paul says, I, above most, if not all of my contemporaries, would certainly stand before you as someone who has nothing to fret about. If adherence to the law would do it, then God would not have had to get my attention in such dramatic fashion, would he? Paul points to the inadequacies of being righteous by the law by pointing out his own exceeding zealousness in that regard and saying, even the zealousness of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the one who towered above his contemporaries, was not enough to redeem him. Verse 15 clears up exactly who gets the glory when it comes to Paul's justification before God. Look at what he says, when it pleased God. And note, it's not Paul's timing. This isn't Paul playing out his perfect plan for his life. It's God's timing. He says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You have to see what Paul's doing here. He gloriously points to the sovereignty of Almighty God in his own salvation. He says, when it pleased God, Not when it was my decision to do these things. Not when I thought that I was ready for these things. Not when my righteousness according to the law had been complete. Not when the apostles decided that I was ready. When? When it pleased God, I did these things. Not just a God, but the God. Paul says, knew me even when I was in the womb of my mother, who called me by his grace when it pleased him for me to go. I went, and not a second before. Paul is echoing here the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah 1.5, where the prophet says that he received a word from the Lord and said, before I formed you in the womb I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. That should take a load off your shoulders, beloved. Before you were born, he sanctified you. And he says, I ordained you a prophet 
to the nations. Paul, in effect, says that like Jeremiah, I have been called to be a prophet to the Gentiles by God himself. And God did not just decide that this would be the next logical step of my life at this point in my journey. But my days were ordained before he ever brought me into this existence of life as we understand it. This was God's plan when I was yet in my mother's womb. And the grace of God through his calling me by, this, by his grace was present then before I ever brought a single breath into my lungs. It was there. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I have to pause here and ask you this morning. Is your God this big? This overall, this so far above you? This provident, sovereign? Beloved, do you agree with Paul's view of the wonderful providence of Almighty God? Do you trust him with your life in this way? where you are willing to stand back and say, the Lord is in control. He's moving and directing all things for his glory and for the good of those whom he has called to love him. Or do you find yourself consistently, constantly grumbling against his providence as if you know far better than God? Beloved, I'm the world's biggest hypocrite standing up here and saying that. I need to hear this in my own life. You need to hear this in your own life. Because it should comfort us. Our our days, our moments, our seconds were ordained by Almighty God before the foundations of the world a sovereign God who loves us even though he knows us. He knows you. Not just who you pretend to be. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. And he loves you like this. We are not just flailing through this life spinning out of control, without hope, stumbling from one man's doctrine to the next, wondering which man will give us the proper light of understanding in these things. His truth hasn't changed. The Word of God says the God who knew us before we were ever known, before He ever placed us in the wombs of our mothers, decided that He would reveal His Son in us and through us because of his grace. Do you believe that this morning? Or do you think it depends upon you making all the right choices, making your good far outweigh your bad? This is the God that we worship every Lord's day. This is the reason that a man like Isaac Watts 
would call the grace of God amazing. The same God who created the universe and everything within it, this creation that contains such depth that we cannot even begin to fully grasp it all, He knows us. He knew us before we were ever known. And He decided from the foundations of the world to reveal His Son to us and in us. Do you praise God for that in your life? It is God who reveals, not man. And if that's true, then the question is, why would we ever want to seek the approval of man and not of God? And truthfully, we don't need to seek the approval of God. In Jesus Christ, we have it. But boy, do we seek it from men, don't we? God promises us that we have his approval in Jesus Christ. It was this God that called Paul to preach the truth of the gospel to these Galatians and not man. Let no man question his authority because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ was revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. God revealed Jesus to Paul. And he did not need to go and be taught the gospel by the apostles in Jerusalem. It was God who opened Paul's eyes. And once the Holy Spirit of God opened the eyes of Paul to the glorious Christ, Paul needed no convincing from any man. Quite contrary to the accusations made here by these false apostles that Paul was rebelling from the teaching he had received from the other apostles in Jerusalem, Paul says in verse 18 that he did not even go to Jerusalem for three years after his experience on the Damascus Road. And he only went three years later when he saw Peter and James only and stayed with them for 15 days before embarking on his ministry. Point by point, Paul throws down the slanders that had been leveled against him by these wolves among the sheep by pointing to the facts surrounding him and his calling to be a minister of God's word. And his attack is detailed. And he hits every point home because as I've mentioned many times now, Paul knows exactly what is at stake in this argument. He was a man that knew the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew what it was. He knew it was the pearl of great price and it was the field of great value. Once a man heard it in all of its glorious truth, once a a man's eyes were opened to that truth by the power of the Spirit of God, that man would gladly sell everything just to get it. In fact, once a person is truly eyes that see and ears that hear, Paul knows that they would be given their very lives for it, to have it. Defending it was not something that required any deliberation for Paul. He goes on to point out in the closing verses of chapter 1 that though the churches of Judea did not know him by face, but had only heard of him who had so persecuted the church and tried so diligently to destroy it, when they just heard of him and what he was doing, they glorified God in him. They recognized it. 
And we ask, why is it that Paul needs to go into so much detail here about his own life? Why does Paul have to spend so much time talking about himself to these Galatians? Beloved, it's because Paul is aware of the damage that had been done through the lies of these false teachers. By pointing out the real facts that surrounded him, Paul not only discredited these teachers, but he gave the very real hope to the Galatians that his own life was proof that his doctrine was true and could be trusted. Man did not open Paul's eyes to his sin and depravity, but the word of God certainly did. Man did not convince Paul that there was indeed a way to justification before a perfect and holy God while in his depraved state, but Jesus Christ did. Paul did not need the teaching of the Pharisees to see that he was sinful and wicked. What Paul needed was a new set of eyes that comes only from an encounter with the Holy Spirit of God and his word. The gospel of Jesus Christ was precious to the Apostle Paul. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it should be no less precious to us. Is it precious to you? Perhaps you don't see the need for all of this clarity concerning something so foundation, if not even elementary, as the gospel. You're already growing tired of hearing again and again about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in your mind, you're sitting here this morning thinking, ah, come on, Steve. We get it. Move on to some practical application for my life. Enough already with the gospel. We understand. We get it. It's not just us, right? This is the church today. We hear this all the time. Well, let me tell you why I do not think that I can ever stop talking about the gospel and why I do not think that the church in general gets it. Because I've been to the Christian bookstores. Because I've listened to so much of what we are willing to call Christian radio. Because I've seen the televangelists. Because I've watched the so-called Christian publishing giants rake in staggering prophets peddling book after wretched book of another gospel altogether. Because I have witnessed even us good reform folk getting busy biting and devouring one another. And you know what it is that really bothers me? Do you know why it is that I feel like I, I won't stop? And you might be surprised. It's not so much the never-ending noise made by the charlatans and the pilferers of the church that bothers me. They're ridiculous to me. It's not that. It's the deafening silence of the church herself and ever standing up and saying, this far and no farther. The gospel is at stake. We have let false teachers have the very best seats in the houses of God. We have let those who say that the plain message of the gospel is simply not quite enough to engage this culture that we live in 
have the front page. We have done nothing. In fact, the truth is, beloved, we have probably even been supported financially of this kind of thing. I know I've talked about it before, but there's an old episode of the White Horse Inn that haunts me that I heard very early uh, on and coming into Reformed theology. And the hosts of that show were walking around uh, the Christian National Christian Booksellers Convention in California. And they were asking people to explain just the basic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was it. And time and time and time again, those answers came back in the form of every, in every form imaginable, except the gospel, not the truth. They didn't know. Only one person in the hundreds of people that they talked to was actually able to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? It should bring us all to the verge of tears. We've we've banked our life on this. These are the people calling themselves the church of Jesus Christ and their answers to the question of questions has little, if anything at all, to do with the Lord Jesus Christ needing to come and die because we are sinners. And everything to do with the power of self and positive thinking and living and acting like Jesus. Beloved, that we would be like the Apostle Paul and fight for the pure teaching of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. Stop making Christianity all about your own personal spiritual odyssey. Stop looking for greener grass. God has placed you in the bride of Christ Your brothers and sisters are covered in the same righteous blood as you. The things you have in common is that you are all sinners deserving of hell and you all have the blood of Jesus Christ covering that sin, making you perfect for eternity. There's nothing to fight about. By means of the Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God alone before our eyes and ears so that you and I would never doubt that all the glory of our redemption is the Lord's. That's what matters. And again, I ask you, beloved, will you stand up and draw your line in the sand when it comes to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if you're not willing to fight that battle, those other battles are worthless. Their waste. Never allowing the gospel to be compromised in your hearing, never allowing those whom God has placed you around to claim ignorance as their excuse. Never allowing yourself to add to the gospel so that you can look better to, or I should say, so you can look better than your neighbor. 
Beloved, this is what we're called to in the word of God. And this is the message that transforms lives by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We Will we embrace it? I pray that we will.